That was a that was a whole different deal. That was her her um, her friends. I pitched in a hundred bucks altogether, and and bet her that she wouldn't go study with me for a month. Jesus, Jacob. I I thought you guys had a a, a thing. That wasn't that bad. Actually, it was, it was kind of cool. We used to walk around together a lot, you know, take walks, you know. <laughs> and uh, we talked about all kind of cool stuff. I held hands with her one time. We were walking around. And my hand sweated so much, she kind of had to let it go. <laughs> I was nervous, I guess. But it was cool. When the month was over, she, uh, you know, kind of she'd say hi to me sometimes on the hallway when I'd see her. She didn't have to do that. That's cool of her. God, Hank, you know, I've, I've never, I've never even kissed a girl before. So, you know, if, if, if being rich will change that, I'm, I'm all for it. I don't care. I just want to feel it. You know, I just want, to, I just want to know what people do. You know, I don't care if it's. Because of the money. Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And we continue our month of November with the 1998 neo-noir crime thriller, A Simple Plan, directed by Sam Raimi. And when I started watching this film and the plot started to unravel, Mike, I was like, oh, man, money being the motivator and the narrative device. This is nothing new. And there was a real feeling of been there, done that. It's like, you know that nothing good is going to come of this, and it's going to be unhappy for everyone involved. Possibly everyone's going to die, and it's going to be one of those movies. However, the tension builds so well throughout, and the relationship between the three male leads and Sarah, a Hank's wife, and as she comes into play... The with... woman. The vile woman. Lady Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> the, the... again. <laughs> Bridget Fonda really channeling that like Lady Macbeth swagger. I'd, I really enjoyed that. I think she might have been my favorite aspect of the film. I'm so happy that A Simple Plan was able to overcome its uh, very familiar plot and devices to becoming a really great tension-filled thriller. What did you think of A Simple Plan? This was my first viewing, so I'm very interested because I, there is definitely a following for this film. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to say that I I was there opening day for this one because I I don't remember seeing it theatrically. I honestly don't remember if it came my way or not. I know it got the sort of Oscar season push and limited release before Christmas, and then according to Wikipedia, it did eventually go wide in in late January. So maintaining that that sort of winter 
winter setting, but this is one that I caught up with on video, and I was working at a video store at the time. I remember it strangely being one of the more popular uh, rentals from from that time period in, in 1999. And I'm thinking, continuing on from Nobody's Fool, that it's that sort of small town uh, element, considering that I grew up in a small town. And certainly coming off of Sling Blade, Billy Bob Thornton was very popular, uh, especially in uh, a small southern community. I think, so what you're talking about is like, yeah, this is very much like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, that sort of thing. Like it's a, it's a staple of just trying to get away with it. Like that's the hard part. Like you can, through sheer happenstance, you can luck into something, but how do you, how do you maintain it? What I found most interesting, and I, I, <laughs> I didn't have any conversations as a teenager with the, the, you know, the older folks coming in and renting this over and over. I just sort of at the time thought, oh, cool. Maybe they have some great taste. And then, you know, they probably rented Deuce Bigelow, like right along with it. And I, you know, shattered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they were just displaying that there's a wide spectrum of, you know, cinema that they wanted to enjoy. But I think it has a lot to do with, and it's what struck me the most watching it for this, this theme, um, in this podcast is the class differences, uh, among the three characters. Even though I would say from an outsider, and certainly those uh, lucky out-of-touch bastards in the coastal elites in New York and L.A. when they got to see it in early December, probably thought that all of these people were <laughs> from dirt farmers, like from the Depression era. Even <laughs> though the film multiple times makes a point that Bill Paxton as, I guess, the uh, favored son, the one that the family put themselves into debt to send to college he is the one that is far removed from the plight of his younger brother. However, what's most interesting is in the homestead, when we get to Lady Macbeth, when we get to Bridget Fonda, she sees that difference, but she also points out that they're not really that different. Like from the outside, they look like they are the successful part of the family. And Billy Bob Thornton is the, the drunk who doesn't have family, doesn't have a place to stay and with every breath, people like him, but they kind of feel sorry for him. But yet she also is pointing out that in her and Bill Paxton's home life, they only go out to restaurants for birthdays or anniversaries. They always have to watch what they're spending money on. Like they, they can have a roof over their head and they're starting a family, but there's deep concerns and a deep lack of satisfaction that's running through the sort of the undercurrent of that, that marriage. Uh, and I feel like, you know, certainly coming off of like, 2008 or 2020, uh, that undercurrent uh, has kind of been brought to the forefront for a lot of people as far as how close you are to, to the brink. And I, I, I like that aspect of it. It's not just pure greed. A lot of times I think the film justifies the character's actions multiple times over. And I even found myself caught up with their, <laughs> their various crimes and cover-ups. It's like, I'm like Bill Paxton. I'm like, okay, if we can just get through this one thing – then it'll be okay. And it's interesting. The, the arc of course, in the film is carried uh, by Billy Bob Thornton, as far as that, that weight that starts to settle in where it's like, yeah, it was one thing, but also how do I live with all of these various things? So I've been a big fan of this for a long time. I haven't given it a lot of rewatches because it's not the most pleasant thriller. In fact, no. in fact it's one of the saddest thrillers I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> 
It is. And this is a perfect example of film that I would have to uh, vet before. <laughs> like, I'm, I call the wife and like, hey, let's enjoy an evening at the movies. <laughs> like, yeah, this one is not so, like I did enjoy this, but I didn't enjoy it in the way I would enjoy. What's your number with Chris Evans? You know, so. You would have been one of those customers I would have been shaking my head at. Like, how do you have a double feature of a simple plan and what's your number? Although, what's your number is excellent. It is. <laughs> I do enjoy that movie. <laughs> no, so I, I absolutely do as well. But it's like you need a palate cleanser after the horrible <laughs> ending that is featured in a simple plan. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, this the monologue that Bridget Fonda has about their current financial uh, state because it really is a great contrast to where we were at the beginning of the film when he just has that hypothetical after the after finding the money and deciding on what they're going to do with it. He's like, "Well, what if we found this money?" And she's like, "Well, we'd have to return it, of course." And so it's really fun to see where people are on their moral high ground and how quickly it descends. She is clearly like up top and then you've got Hank and then Jacob because Billy Bob Thornton's character is more simple than the others. Although it's odd because he is still fairly intelligent and, and he's able to take Hank's plans and use them and execute them really eloquently. Uh, and then on the bottom, I think you've got Lou, who's just like, I need money. I need a bad. <laughs> These guys are going to take my truck. Oh, my God. So <laughs> he's definitely on the bottom where he's like, I just want the money. It's it's just very interesting to see Sarah kind of descend very quickly as soon as the big pile of money is shown on that table. And then she's all giddy with, ooh. Like, the concept of it is... Like, oh, of course you do the right thing, but all of a sudden you see that kind of money in front of you and everything changes. And... I had, like, the best, <laughs> or should I say, like, the worst feeling. As you're watching these horrible events unfold, as you're seeing one person turn on another, and you've got Sarah influencing Hank in all the worst ways, I think about it. It's like, well, if I found the money, and now I'm looking at the audience, maybe the audience is on the moral high ground. It's like, if I found the money, I feel like I'd get away with it. If it was me and Mike, and we're in the woods, and hanging out, and we find this money... Of course the two of us wouldn't turn on each other. We'd be driving Apple cars into our bright future <laughs> with the latest technology in just a number of years, and we'd get away with it all. But I, re you know what? At the end of this movie, I really don't know. I feel like I would never turn on you, but I don't know. Maybe I want a little more tech than... <laughs> so it's their plan, though, right? It's It's a good plan as far as... We have to wait on this. We have to wait and see where yes. does this money come from, who's who's looking for it, and if there's some sort of catch. Um, and so I think, like I said, they keep justifying it to the audience. Like, okay, so Bill Paxton's saying we're not going to spend it, we're not going to touch it, let's wait until spring. But that's where the problems come in. I think among the three men who find the money is they don't just divide it up right then and there and go their separate ways. They have to share in this secret for months and months. And most of them are already at a, a sort of tipping point in some respects. Um, it's interesting, the difference between Lou and Jacob. Lou has the more pressing, just financial matters. He says that he owes people money and perhaps he's already counted on the sort of winning lottery ticket the, as a fallback. He, he already sees that path. Jacob's like plans for, for the money 
are so fantastical, but so sweet as far as he, he just wants to go back to the place he was before. He, he doesn't really envision a new life for himself. Like the others two, where it's like, you know, you're talking about Apple cars and all this tech and, you know, Bridget Fonda is mainly just, I think probably talking about their, their daughter and uh, what they could do with the life they could have of joy going forward. But Jacob just wants to return to childhood. And it's, it's striking in that, I don't know. I don't know the property value of the particular family farm here, but he doesn't certainly doesn't need four million to fall into his lap to acquire that. And it's funny that his his dream is the one that is judged as the most dangerous. Like, oh no, you can't do that. We have to like basically to cash this check, we have to lose everything about our previous identity, even if it's not running from the law. They can't be seen amongst the people they've grown up with as falling into this this great amount of wealth. I, I think it, I think it's the, the waiting that that does it. It doesn't help that a damn farmer's after a fox and like will not be told otherwise. Like he just has to get the, <laughs> has to get that damn fantastic Mister Fox and <laughs> gets conked <laughs> in the head over it. <laughs> but those are the things that are going to happen. These are what I like about the movie is a lot of times, especially in crime thrillers, you see master criminals doing stupid things out of greed. I think for the most part. They're, and that's probably the, the point of it, is that these regular people actually are pretty fucking accomplished at killing and covering up their crimes. And I guess that's meant to be the scary part of it, is like, no, they can actually fall into this lifestyle rather quickly and justify it rather quickly as well. Is it tougher or is it easier to do that in the small town setting? Because you, you, like you said, and that's one thing I'm so glad that you mentioned is that you are from that small town where everybody is kind of in everybody's business. So do you think it's easier to cover up a crime like that when you're in the small town or is it tougher? I would think it's, it's, it's tougher. Um, I, I haven't kept up with it, but I did watch a few episodes of the, uh, the new Dexter that I guess relaunched. And I, I noticed just in the first three, that watched kind of, you know, halfway while I was, you know, planning the great trilogy in theory you know, on my iPad, looking up every once in a while to, to listen to another monotonous monologue from the, the, <laughs> the funeral director from Six Feet Under. They had moved the setting of that story of a serial killer from Miami to a, a small town out in the, the, the west, out in the north. I thought, well... I don't know if his normal shenanigans are going to fly because how do you blame it on yet another serial killer has come to like Andy <laughs> Griffith's small town? <laughs> I don't know. I would think that um, it's a mixture of, of both here. Uh, there's that willing willingness to believe people are going to be as they always were, which I think we see with the sort of local cop. Uh, there's a, a couple little bits that Raimi tries to to have the, the the stare down of the cop as if you think, oh wait, he's figured it out, but he can't he can't see. And I think Bridget Fonda even has that a line which is really cutting when she's debating with Hank on whether or not to go meet this assumed FBI man. She says something in the fact of like, no one will know what you're capable of doing. Like no one can see that, and that right there is probably the end of it. Like, because they, they have to look each other in the eye later. They, they're, they're in it together, but I don't know. I would, I, I would think that part of the actual crime shenanigans would eventually get too difficult to believe in that small community. I don't know how many old men can accidentally drive off a bridge on their, <laughs> and Jacob says as much like, you know, that guy did that like probably thousands of times in his life. And just all of a sudden he just made a, made a wrong turn. But 
I, I, that's not really an answer to your question. I'd say a mixture of both. I would say that people would, yes, they would be in your business and in your habits, but because of that, you've probably earned a certain degree of trust that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily in the big city. Right. And you mentioned Raimi, and that's one of the first things that uh, attracted me to this movie is as soon as you mentioned it is because it was on my list, but it's one of Sam Raimi's more character driven works. Uh, the guy became famous for Evil Dead and then and then Dark Man when I think people <laughs> when he wouldn't get one of the bigger franchises, like, oh I'll just make my own fucking superhero. So Dark Man and then Army of Darkness. So a lot of like special effects heavy slash like very knee deep into genre work. Um I haven't seen Quick and the Dead, but then he followed it up with a simple plan. So there aren't a lot of dynamic shots in this film. So is Raimi bringing anything interesting to this film? Clearly, I think the tension that's created partly of it, I think you have to give him some credit as, as, along with the script. But did you see a lot of moments in this film where like, oh, this this is Sam Raimi? Actually, that's probably why it's my favorite film, Fizz. That it's like he he managed to leave himself out of it, like he got out of the way of the material. I would say, I mean, there's a 2000 film called The Gift, starring Kate Blanchett, that is the closest to this, as far as a small town like murder mystery of sorts. Um, now it's flipped, and that when you're trying to like figure out the the who done it aspect of it, and it's certainly about people who are. All up in each other's business. If you have any interest in that, I think it's primarily known for, well, two things in my world. Uh, Keanu Reeves actually plays a uh, very bad husband that uh, beats his uh, wife. Um, so Keanu is not the, the nice guy that the internet has embraced. And Katie Holmes got topless in it. So as a young man, it was very <laughs> you know, coming off of Dawson's Creek. Um, you know, I appreciate that. But it's a, it's a little more, there's a little bit more Raimi there because there's like sort of a quasi supernatural element to it so uh but you're right um i mean some people might say for the love of the game like what is this dork doing <laughs> making a baseball movie so i guess in that 98 to 2000 period he was like trying on uh different things but i you know looking at his filmography i'm kind of surprised that wow the last thing he did was 2013's oz the great and powerful 2013 yeah um, came back for that Marvel money. That's <laughs> he was holding out like <laughs> Chris <Right>. Tucker or something. <laughs> well, that's what, yeah, that's why I am excited about, um, Dr. Strange more so than the average Marvel film, because, uh, it's, it's a new Raimi film. And for the most part, I'd like to think that they would leave him alone because he's got a track record, but we'll see. The gift actually was on my radar, uh, for the past couple of weeks. I'm knee deep into, uh, Eli Roth's history of horror and the gift was brought up when they were talking about um, films about clairvoyance or, or any kind of mind control so uh, that is on the list to watch for sure and I will definitely be checking that out and Billy Bob uh, wrote the film so that's kind of interesting as well I want to touch on one aspect of the film that really struck me uh, because it's it's very personal and it deals with the concept of being an immigrant and the American dream. One of the lines that really hit me is, you work for the American dream, you don't steal it. It clashes very heavily with the line that George Carlin famously said, which is, uh, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Now, while I love Carlin, like I don't think I can subscribe to that level of pessimism because... My family uh, came to this country 
in the early 90s. And, you know, my father and mother both have the equivalent of master's degrees. They were both teachers, very highly educated. And my father came to this country and had to take jobs just to support the family. He was working three jobs at one point uh, at a giant food, at a 7-Eleven, and at a movie theater. And so it's like, we worked our way, and now when I say we, I do mean my parents. I had very little to do with that. I was just going to school, you know, and they never made me feel like we were poor. They worked their way up to the point where we're well into like, I would say like upper middle class, I would say, you know, uh, uh, my parents own a home. I own a home. It's like, we're there. Like, I think we achieved the American dream because that's kind of what it is to come to this country where you have very little and work your way up. And you own a piece of land. And that's really, really exciting. And so that line, you work for the American dream, you don't steal it, really struck me. And I, I do wonder that perception, like, is it there among Americans? Right now, my, my wife is in the process of becoming a citizen of this country. She's uh, studying the history and looking over the citizenship test. And I was discussing this with a few co-workers and <laughs> a few right, right-leaning right co-workers who were like, well, you're doing it the right way and this. And, and it's like, and I was like, man, it is hard to become a citizen here. There are a lot of uh, uh, financial difficulties. Uh, you have to keep track of everything. You have to study. And it, it's it's just... It's fascinating to see some of the individuals who are born in this country who don't really understand what a big deal it is. And I kind of feel like that when I look at Lou and when even even some, you know, when I look at Hank's character, I was like, I see a little bit of that, but except he kind of understands that. Did you get any of that? Am I, am I just grasping at straws here? I don't know. That, because it's a personal topic to me, it just, it stuck out to me in this film. Steal it. Fucking steal it. Um, I have some <laughs> <laughs> some numbers that really don't have anything to do with simple plan, but I just you know I'm, I've become very uh, very much. I, I think it's 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 either time to eat the rich or for this planet to explode uh, entirely. That that's my my viewpoint. So uh, tuition in 1980 to go to NYU uh, five thousand dollars. Oh, um, in 2016 it was forty nine thousand dollars <clears throat> minimum wage in 1980 was three dollars and ten cents and in 2016 it was seven dollars and 25 cents so the gap in how you can you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps which is mostly bullshit yeah let's see minimum wage would have to to work the same number of hours if you had a minimum wage job to put yourself through just nyu for example in 1980 you know almost 40 years later minimum wage would have to be 30 dollars an hour for the equivalent wow. of the same person working at a gas station or – you know, it's, it's interesting in a simple plan. They, they talk about how Hank has a good job but his wife is like you need – you basically need for the guy who runs it to die in hopes that you take over and get your first raise in like decades. And so that's what was most interesting watching it now. I probably didn't consider that as a teenager. Um, I was just thinking about, wouldn't it be cool if you just found four and a half million dollars in the woods? Wouldn't that be awesome? That sort of the thing people do when they buy lottery tickets where you just get to daydream about how great your life would be. And then you go back to praying for death every, <laughs> every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> but, um, I think that's that, – to me, I, I look at it in a far more cynical way where it's like you might as well just be your black sheep brother who seems far happier. He doesn't really have anything. 
But apparently you don't either. Your wife says she's deeply unhappy. Uh, she lives in constant fear of your child's life. If she's going to fall into the same, I guess, lower middle class uh, lifestyle that they have. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically just cogs in a machine. They're just there to prop up someone else who makes money off their backs. And then your retirement plan is have a heart attack and fucking die. <laughs> and That's very it. much like a simple plan, we end this recording on a pretty sour and brutal note. So steal it. That's the lesson. Take it. Fucking take it, Lou. You're right. <laughs> in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money. <laughs> Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything they can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs.